Hey, hey, you people of Earth, it's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Casey. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Does Superman fly, or is it a feat of strength and he's just literally jumping? I think he just wills the air around him to be lighter. He's like, nope, I'm better than you. He wills the air to yeah. be lighter. <laughs> <laughs> if only you could will things that way. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's not accurate in any way, shape, or form, but it's funny. Well, forever it was leaps tall buildings in a single bound, and I get that they wanted to show... Like the flying it came wasn't, from what? It wasn't the forever, TV though. show, right? Is that what you said? Yeah, no. It was it was that way from 1938 until like 1941 or 42. And then the Max Fletcher cartoons came on and they made him fly because it was cheaper to make him fly than make him jump. That's so interesting. I'm only asking because I think it's a legitimate question. Is, a feat of, is, it, is his flying a feat of strength or is it something else? Well, here's 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 the here's the best question before we get to the, get to the intro of this episode for this nice cold open here. Yeah, I understand how he can fly, how all superheroes can fly, right? Yeah. But how does he go faster? What's his propulsion system? Yeah. Is he just farting? Could be farting. No, he just gets like this constipated look on his face and and just pushes his hands just that little bit further. Right, and that's why I say he's a William around him because how does he go fast? How does anybody who flies go faster? Yeah, it's it's, it's like, a, there's no way. To, you know, it's a question. I get for hovering. You know what? You know what yeah. else that you can do? What else? What's that? Welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That right there is the informed. He's going to will this episode to be good, Mister Horsley. <laughs> and today on the show, well, it's Cully Hamner, isn't it? It is, man. I don't have to will to be good. It's going to be good because Cully's a great dude, man. I follow him on Twitter and he's got some, uh, one, he's a fantastic artist and creator. And, uh, and two, I, I, I like his opinions on things. Yeah. But today he comes on and talks with Jeff about Future State, Superman and Metropolis, because he's one of the artists on that one. And, uh, and they talk about other stuff as well. But uh, that's the, the way he comes on to promote because that's a new book up in, from DC. I don't know if you've read any of the Future State stuff, man, but they're pretty good. Are they good? I have not read it. Yeah. I, I, I have not been reading the big two. Only, literally, the only thing I'm up on is Savage Avengers, and I'm on. I'm waiting for number nineteen to come out. Ah, and that's it. Well, I, I, I think I think you'd like the Future State stuff because it, it's a lot of like it, it's it's they're doing a good job with it. Nice. I'll check it out. I'll, I'd be I'd be more than happy to check it out. Is yeah. it on Comicsology? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'll go there and check it out because. Getting going back and finding anything nowadays is like impossible, right? Like, dude, I want to get the first uh, appearance of Cosmic Ghost Rider. Right, it's like one hundred and sixty dollars. Jeez, is it? Yeah, and it won't go down. I'm like thinking it's gonna go down. It's gonna go down, and it has not gone down. And I don't know what happened, but this year all the comic books have spiked in value. What gets me about stuff like that is like that's not about like 
cosmic ghost riders that's not really a new character that's i mean it kind of is it's just an old character with new abilities yeah it's like, just it's frank castle repurposed yeah and it's like uh, i get it but it's like and it's uh, it's like two years old right there's like two hundred thousand copies out there i don't think they printed that many i don't know i'm just i'm pulling that number out my butt but i have I mean, no most, idea most comics don't have that high of a print run anymore most comics print runs like uh between like 20 there's to like 60K. 30 million copies out there Totally. 30 million copies out there. 100 billion copies. There's more copies yeah. than the people on planet Earth. Yeah. There's infinite number of copies and you can't buy one of those $100. Yeah. It's crazy. It's, but it is crazy. Anyways, we should probably get into Cully Hamner because he's here to talk about Superman, right? Yeah. About Future State, Superman and Metropolis, and a bunch more stuff because he's, he's, he's done a lot of stuff. So look him up and uh, definitely check out the books. That's perfect. Let's, let's sit back and listen. everybody welcome again to another episode of spoiler country today on the show we have a big treat for some reason and i don't know why i keep running into comics professionals from alabama i had no idea this guy was from alabama cully hamner oh my goodness cully how you doing man good good how are you i'm good that was a terrible intro it can only go up from here so <laughs> yeah no i i am indeed i grew up in alabama i lived there till i was about 20 Two or three. What was um, what was the tipping point? What made you like? I need to get the hell out of here. Well, I mean, you know, yeah, there was a little bit of that. There was a little bit of that kind of like Luke looking at the twin sons kind of thing a little <laughs> bit, you know. But but also, I had I had become friends with a bunch of the the people who became Gaijin Studios, and I really kind of felt like a gravitational pull towards them because I felt like all of them had something different that I could learn about and 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 they all seem to be really cool people and and ended up staying there for 18 years oh wow yeah yeah that 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 was like a formative period on on your life for sure oh sure yeah i mean you know i didn't go to college i, I didn't have that sort of college experience no no I didn't go to art school or anything like that i i did well backtracking a little bit when i still lived in in huntsville which is the the city in alabama that i lived in there was a guy there by the name of Don Howard, who was an ex, like a Disney designer, like a character designer. And he was from the area and he had moved back with his family and, you know, his, I guess, I guess to sort of take care of his mother and, and that sort of thing. And I had taken a, I, I, I saw an ad for a class that he was giving in caricature. And I, I went to the class. There was one other guy there who was around my age and everybody else was a retiree because there, it was a continuing education class or that's what it was considered to be. And I, he kind of immediately sort of zeroed in on me and said, you know, I could use an assistant. So I worked for him for probably, I want to say a couple of years, two years, something like that. And gave me a really good grounding, not, not just in caricature, but it was a general kind of a commercial art job. So we would do stuff for, you know, Coca-Cola and, and, and Westinghouse and all these defense contractors and the, the, the local airport and stuff like that. It was a pretty varied set of jobs that we did. And I pretty much rolled directly from that job into comics. And, and, and by that point, I had sort of met like Brian and, and Adam and Carl and Scene and, you know, 
and everybody and had at that point like like a studio was starting to form and i was kind of the last of that kind of original crew to join up that is and you were in there like just naming off names brian stelfreeze automatically just Sure. An amazing yeah. artist, Adam Hughes, Jason Pearson, Dave Johnson, Dave Johnson. Oh my gosh, Tony Harris, Carl Story, and I, I can keep reading. But it, it's sure. amazing about, people. About half the people you named were roommates of mine at one point. <laughs> <laughs> so, so those people really have the dirt. I, I need to be talking. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> we we all have collective dirt. Let me tell you. No, I mean you know it was good. It was a, it was a great experience, and you know I wouldn't have stayed there for as long as I did if I didn't. I didn't kind of have that. I mean, it was, it was kind of a, a it sort of turned into a family and, you know, with all the stuff that that entails, you know, there's the love there, but there's also the kind of screaming at each other there. And Adam used to like to say that it was like being in a band. <laughs> and, and, and I have, I have come to the realization after so many years at this point, it really was kind of like being somewhat like in a band, especially, you know, this many years later, you know, people come up to me and talk to me about the studio, you know, but from a remote perspective and that they read about it or they read our work or they, they, you know, had followed us and heard rumors about this or that or whatever. And it's always kind of amusing to me, you know, when people come up to me from that point of view, because I'm like, this was just, this is where I lived for 20 years, you know, people I hung out with. Yeah. Yeah. And it, when you were in this, you know, just starting out, did you know how the, the depth of, you know, the, the amazing stuff that you were doing, did, did it, did it register to you that you guys were doing something special or was it just like, we just need to keep the power on? <laughs> I, you know, there, yes and no. I mean, it, it, it registered in the sense that I thought that everybody was doing amazing work. It, I'll be honest, and I'm not trying to be like sort of self-deprecating here. I always felt like I was barely keeping up with everybody, you know? So I was just kind of like, there was like a sense, and and I've heard from some of the other guys that, you know, that they sort of felt the same way, right? So we, there was a sense of kind of competition, like in a friendly sense, which I don't think is a bad thing at all. We We would each kind of walk around to each other's tables whether we were there or not, you know, you know, whether we were working at the time or not, sometimes after hours, you'd walk around, look at what, whatever was on, you know, Adam's desk or Brian's desk or whatever. And, and you go, man, okay, I better step it up a little bit here, you know? So there, there was a bit of that, you know, but if you're asking me if, if I knew that I'd be talking about it, you know, 30 years later, <laughs> no, then that, I, that, that was not, something that ever kind of crossed my mind. It still kind of blows my mind a little bit that people bring up the studio to me, but man, that's awesome. Isn't it? I mean, that's really, it, it really cool. is. Yeah. And I'm sure it gave you a, a sense of like healthy competition with, you know, your, your fellow artists, not, not in a, a negative sense, but in, in a sense to, to push yourselves further. And yeah, uh, well, there was that you know, with each other. And then there was also that collectively as a group with other people outside the studio, including other studios. So, you know, there was always that, you know, kind of like, well, you know, we're the East Coast, we're the East Coast guys, but then there are the West Coast guys like Homage and Extreme and, and, you know, those guys. Then there was a studio in North Carolina called, called Artemis that was, 
you know, also a studio that we knew and there were, there were guys in the Pacific Northwest and, and, you know, we, we all kind of were aware of each other and there was that sort of tribalism a little bit, you know, but it was all friendly as far as I knew. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So what, why comics? What brought you into <laughs> well, comics? You know, I, I, you know, I've, I've read comics pretty much since I could read and, I would even go so far as to say I, I, if I, you know, this is at this point, this is an old saw. I say this all the time, but like if I didn't necessarily learn to read from comics per se, I I learned to love reading from comics and I just sort of always drew. And, and even from a young age, I knew that somebody, I figured out somebody had to do that for a living and it just seemed like an impossible dream, but it was something I always did. And it also, you know, was not simply about the drawing. It was about a love of stories and a love of creating stories. So, you know, it it just sort of seemed like a natural thing. I mean, I I had, you know, I had a hundred other things that I sort of thought about doing, but mix was the constant. So that, that was kind of the one that I always kind of came back to. Oddly enough, it also seemed to be kind of the easiest thing that I wanted to do. Uh, in, in the sense that, you know, I, you know, I was kind of a creative kid. I was an artistic kid and everything that I wanted to do was basically a pipe dream. So it was like, I, I'd I'd want to be an actor. I'd like to be a comedian. I'd like to be, you know, a, a writer of novels, or I'd like to be, you know, a singer in a band, you know, that, that sort of thing. These are all things that I I was kind of like, seriously considering, well, maybe I should, you know, move to New York. Maybe I should move to LA and, and try this acting thing or, or try to get on the stage or that sort of thing. And believe it or not, comics was kind of the most realistic. You know, I, I also sort of felt that, you know, with, with my looks, I was like the best I could ever do was, would be to, you know, play somebody's goofy neighbor or, or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, or, or be in the chorus, you know, in a stage production or something in regional theater. Or, so, so I, theater play play was something that you were passionate about young when you were younger for a little while. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 you know, not, not just theater. I mean, I was, I was in plays a lot in high school, but I also was on the speech team and, and was kind of passionate about that for a little while, but you know, it just sort of fell by the wayside because comics sort of took over. And, and also, you know, you got to remember this was the, the, I, I was my my teenage years were basically the eighties. So like, you know, I, I, I was, you know, in nineteen eighty I was eleven and you know, I graduated high school in eighty seven. So you know, it's like there was so much exciting stuff coming out of comics at that time, not just from Marvel and DC, but just from everybody. You know, all these small publishers were popping up and and it was just a really exceptional time in this business and it just inspired me to want to do that kind of work you know and and it just was really there was like this expansion going on in the business and so i broke in in like 1991 just like at the tail end of of that kind of exciting period which coincided with the whole image explosion you know that that you know where where you know all the marvel guys left and formed image and there was all this competition and you know it, it's you know, I kind of broke in at a time when, honestly, it was really easy to break in, you know, because there was so much demand for artists at that point that if you could, you know, you could hold a pencil and make a line, you could pretty much get work in comics. <laughs> the, the, 
the real test was staying staying in after the the uh, the bust because it all did eventually kind of start to contract and bust right around about you know ninety four ninety five and you know having having only been in the industry for what four years at the yeah. time when that happened, what was your reaction? What did you do? Well, you know, your reaction, at least my reaction, was not like, okay, here's the bust. You know, like, like, because, you know, you're looking at it in hindsight now. It's, it's an historical event. But at the time, it's just what you're in the middle of. And it's like, for me, it was just like, let me make sure I have a job next month. You know, let me make sure that I have a gig or I have something, some work coming in pretty much at, at all times. You just, you just kind of keep your, you just kind of keep your head down, you know, and, and, hope you know you don't lose it you know you know it's like you know no nobody in world war ii was in a foxhole going i'm in world war ii you know it was just yeah. <laughs> you, you're just in a foxhole trying to stay alive and, and not not to equate it equate the two literally but you know it was simply of like these are the facts on the ground here's what i have to make next month i want to keep drawing comics you know this is a cool character or this is a character i don't like or whatever but whatever i'm going to do the work you know and you're just trying to stay alive and, you know, before you know it, 20 years have gone by. So it, you've just kept your head down and, and worked your butt off. And Yeah, I mean, you know, there was a, I mean, you know, that's reductive. I mean, I'm simplifying a lot, but it really was just a matter of kind of month to month making sure that you had a job. And somehow, you know, I survived like, you know, a number of people. Have, but a lot of people left. A lot of people left the business, and I'm not entirely sure how I managed to kind of stick around, except that I'm just really stubborn, I guess. I, <laughs> I mean, the work speaks for itself, too. I mean, you you you've got an awesome amount of talent, and your your style, especially when you were first starting out, was not the typical house style. It was it was a little unformed, I guess, a little undirected. You know, I look at that stuff now, and I mean, I'll be honest. I, I you know, I look at my earliest stuff, and I, I just it gives me the shivers. I just don't. I'm like, how did I really get get work with? You know, I think a lot of a lot of artists will are are like the like they sort of cringe at their earliest stuff. Yeah, Mosaic uh, is so good. I mean, I really appreciate it. I you know, and I <laughs> I, I get a sense of that from people telling me like you. I just, I see all the things I couldn't do, you know? I hear you. Yeah. But to be fair, I do that now too. It's like, I look at something I did a month ago and I see all the things that I couldn't pull off. I mean, I, to me that, that maybe is, you know, part of why I'm still kicking around is that, you know, it, I still feel like I have goals that I want to achieve. You know, it's funny. I, I just I just saw on Twitter, like I mean, literally 15 minutes ago, Kevin McGuire expressing something similar on on in a thread that he was he had going on Twitter about you know that he did not feel that he had accomplished what he set out to accomplish yet, and that's the very important part is yet because you know he's maybe right around the same age as me, a little bit older, and I think that as long as you have that goal in mind of like, I still haven't reached that benchmark. You're still going to keep reaching for it. So we're both still kicking around. I hear you. I hear yeah. you. So you, you've been able to kind of not only do the, the standard superhero affair, but you, you also have 
several other projects that you've done, notably Red. Oh, yeah. How did that come about? That came about because Warren and I were kind of aware of each other. I mean, Warren, you know, he lives in in the UK. I live in the USA and, and we had never actually met, but, you know, he was doing some pretty amazing work and, you know, he was always looking for artists to work with. And there was, there was a project that, that almost happened at Dark Horse called uh, Magic Bullet, I think is what it was called. And it was like a graphic novel project. And there was a pitch that I had read and it was really cool. And it had to do with an older assassin type character, but just nothing ever came of it. And then Warren, I guess, was was doing a lot of stuff at Wildstorm. And I guess he sort of had you know, basically carte blanche to, you know, to do projects there. So he just started doing all these kind of little in and out sort of three issue miniseries. So there was like, he did one with, you know, Amanda Connor and he did one with, you know, just, there was all these different miniseries reload and there was, you know, two step and all these different series. And he came to us at the studio at Gaijin and he wanted to do something with me. He wanted to do something with Brian Stelfreeze. And the one he had for me was called red. And it had a lot in common with the magic bullets thing. I, I, I don't know this for sure, but I sort of feel like if, if, if it wasn't a retooled version of that pitch, there were some elements that made it from that pitch to this. Brian, he, there was a project he wanted to do with Brian called Faster. And for some reason, it never happened. I don't, I don't know why. But Red, you know, I was like, well, you know, this was like the quickest approval I'd ever gotten on anything. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, Warren sent the pitch in to, to Wildstorm set, you know, with my name attached. And it was approved like later that day. And... So we just got to work on it, you know, and, and that was, that came out in 2000, 2003, five, two, two and three, two and three. I think, I think the first, the first issue came out in 2002 and I think it wrapped up in 2003 Nice over the, over the holiday. So, yeah. And, and you know, what's funny is, you know, I mean, it was a moderate success. It wasn't like, you know, sort of set the world on fire sales, but it probably sold better than any of the other three issue miniseries that he had done at Wildstorm. The thing that was really interesting about it is, you know, the, these books, you know, you, generally you'll get a number one that, you know, the numbers will be up at a certain point and then they'll start to drop before they stabilize right around issue three or four, because that's when, you know, when they're, when they're ordering those issues, that's when they're seeing the first issue. So they know what it is. This was a three issue series. So it really kind of didn't, it, it didn't, wasn't really affected necessarily by, you know, seeing the th first issue when you're ordering the fourth issue, you know, yeah, or, thir or third or fourth issue. So it's like the, the numbers from issue to issue on those three issues were completely stable. And they weren't like huge numbers. We're talking like probably around 20,000. But for a creator-owned book without superheroes in 2002 and three, these are pretty good numbers. And I'm, I'm sure the numbers are still solid right now with the trades, right? You know what? I don't know. I actually, I mean, I, I get royalties on them. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I get a royalty statement and so I can see what the numbers are. 
I don't know. I'm not entirely sure if it's even in print at this point. Really? Or if they're just selling out of the warehouse. But I do know that like, you know, it came out, it it did okay. And then that was kind of it. There was never any talk of doing anything further with it or anything like that. I don't think Warren is is like a, a sequel kind of a guy. So we just kind of let it go, and 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 it came out and tra- when they released it in trade, they released all these miniseries because they're so short. They released two to a trade, and they did these sort of flip books. Oh. On one side there would be red, and then you'd flip it over, and there would be I think there was another miniseries of his called Tokyo Storm Warning, and that was kind of it for a while, you know. And nobody really ever talked about it much until you know, the, the, the movie happened and then suddenly like they put it out in its own trade. And I mean, it just sold through the roof, you know, but up until the movie happened, it really, I mean, it was, it was, it was fine. You know, it didn't really, (laughs) didn't really like, you know, break any walls down or any, or anything like that. Well, what, what, when the movie start like first started happening, did you, what was your reaction when you found out that, you know, Bruce Willis and, and all these other people were going to be portraying characters that you had a hand in creating? It, it was kind of a, of an escalating sense of, oh, this is actually going to happen. Because, you, know? <laughs> you know, when you get, first get that call, you're like, oh, cool. But, you know, I've been around a little bit at that point. And I knew that, you know, just because you sold an option on something doesn't mean it's going to get made. It just means that, you know. You know, here's a check, you know, and, and a couple of years later, you'll get these rights back and, you know, somebody else may get it or not, you know. And period of negotiating that deal was, I guess, probably about a year. I want to say this is maybe 2007 or 2008 when I got the call for that. And, you know, I thought it was, you know, it's like, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, well, let's talk about it. You know, we, we made this deal and it just seemed like every time, every couple of months, I would get like, uh, a note or a call saying, oh, well, so-and-so is interested or this director is is circling it, you know, or that sort of thing. I think for a little while, Richard Donner was was the guy they were talking about or was, really? was interested in doing it. But when they got a director on board, then everything started happening really fast. And then when, you know, when Bruce Willis signed on, you know, so did Helen Mirren and, you know, so on and so forth. And it, it just kind of mushroomed from there. And I, I was kind of stunned at how quickly things happened after that, because I was used to always reading about, you know, so-and-so sold an option and, you know, this is a movie you'll never get to see, you know, but it, it you know, happened. I, I, I'm under no impression that it wasn't unusual in how quickly it happened. I know that at one point, the part that John Malkovich played actually was originally supposed to be John C. Riley, and he oh, pulled really? out. Yeah. And John Malkovich kind of signed on at the last minute to do it. But, you know, before you know it, they're like shooting, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I, you know, went out for a visit for about a week and hung around the set and, you know, and then about a year after that, it's out. And you, you have one of those rare instances when you have a movie made from your work and surprise, surprise, it's good. It's not, yeah. <laughs> it's not something that you want to be, kind, that you're kind of embarrassed to be attached to outside of, yes, I got money from this and I cashed a check and it bought a house or whatever. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, what's, what's funny about it though, is that I, I, at the time was running into people who wanted me to be embarrassed about it because the movie was so different than the book. You know, the book, the book is, is a, a pretty tight little story, not particularly complicated. And I'm um, sorry about that. The phone's ringing. 
Oh, that's all good, man. Give me one second. The, the, the story, it's a tight little story, you know, kind of a mean, I wouldn't say mean-spirited, but it's it's definitely a darker kind of a tale. Movie's an out-and-out comedy. It's like an action comedy, and the tone of it is completely different. And, you know, there were, there were a few people that were kind of like, oh, you're selling out. And I'm like, no, it's just a... You want to read my book? The the, the books on the the book on the bookshelf. You can buy yeah. a copy anytime you want. It exists uh, as a thing in and of itself. Yeah, and and you know it's it's you can watch the movie, and there there are certain things about the movie that are you know similar to the book, especially the beginning. But but you know, besides that, it's it goes off in its own direction, and that's you know it's pretty common. I mean, I don't think anybody called the the guy that wrote Jaws a sellout. I mean, you know, the Jaws, the book Jaws is very different than the movie. And I don't know why a comic should be any different. I mean, the, the thing about it is, is I think if you're going to make a Superman movie, you are it is incumbent upon you to stick to what Superman is. But if you're going to adapt a three issue miniseries. Uh, of characters that no one's ever heard of before. I mean, you know, you can have a little leeway. You know, oh, yeah. a, mo- a movie's not a comic, and a comic isn't a movie. You know. Yeah, I totally get that, and yeah. it's you know two different ways of telling a story as well. Exactly. Like you, you, yeah. You can't use the the comics panels as the uh, as the illustrations to to base the movie off of because it's just not. I mean, you know, it, it, it's. <laughs> To me, there, there's, it's not that you shouldn't or not that you should. It's just that there's a lot of leeway there. I mean, you look at something like Sin City, and that's a pretty straight adaptation of the comic. But you look at like something that we did, and it's it's uh, they, there are a lot of liberties taken there. But I was fine with it because the end product is a good movie. Oh, know? yeah. Yeah. And not not just one good movie, but two movies that yeah. – uh, that's Yeah, that's, that's the other thing that's kind of <laughs> crazy is like, you know, we got two movies out of that. Yeah, that that's crazy. And yeah. just from, you know, what, two two issue comic? That is three issues. It's three issues, sorry. Three issues, yeah. Oh my goodness. So that that had to have been kind of a, a shock. Just oh, okay. This is happening. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was. <laughs> I mean, you know, I you just you just manage it. You just learn to navigate it. And I mean, I'm not gonna lie, it's like my the name my name value did take a step up when that oh, movie really? came out. I mean, just in terms of, of comics, you know, I mean, I was starting to get offered like sort of better projects. I mean, I assume that that's the reason. I was starting to get offered better projects and 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 that sort of thing. So I, I, I assume that it was because, you know, there was a movie with my name on it out there. And preceding that, like, you had so many just solid books out and you've worked with so many different solid creators. Like you, you got yeah. to work with Alan Moore for a comic. And that to me, just as a, as a person terrifies me because, <laughs> oh my goodness, how, how was that experience? Well, first, I mean, you're going to, you're going to laugh at this. What did I work with him on? Oh, Tom Strong, number three. So I'm, well, I'm guessing you were a okay. fill in. No, no, no. Well, here, here's what happened with that. Chris Browse got behind. And Chris needed some help to get back on schedule. And what I did was I drew all of his backgrounds for an issue or two. Nice. nice. That's okay. really all I did. So I never actually worked with Alan Moore. I, I, I've, I spoke with Alan Moore once on the phone because we were doing a Gaijin anniversary book. And I, I was sort of the in-house editor of the thing at the studio. And I wanted him to write a short story. And I, I got his number from somebody and called him. 
<laughs> just sort of cold called it. <laughs> he was very nice about it, and and you know was was very. He seemed very appreciative of the call and just didn't have time to do it. And he let me down easy. It was very, very cool about it. it I, I can't, I know he's a person and he obviously <laughs> has his own thing that he, I, I just can't imagine that man just sitting around watching TV or, you know, whatever <laughs> he, he needs know. to I be. Mean, <laughs> at this point, it's like, you know, I, I, you know, I, I may have felt that way at one point, but I, I, I've met so many people at this point in comics that i considered heroes growing up and they're just you know it's nine times out of ten they're just super nice normal people you know oh yeah yeah like like you know when i was when i was a teenager like i loved you know like like howard shaken and and walt simonson and and bilson kevich and you know now i've gotten to be friends with those guys and they're just i mean they're top shelf people they're just cool people and that that's always a nice thing when you meet people that you grew up admiring and they turn out to be even better than you wanted them to be, you know? Can you tell me a little bit about the Blue Beetle and more specifically, like you kind of helped launch that character, Jamie, right? Sure. My, my memory of it is that I had, uh, I had met Dan Dio at a convention. I want to say it was in Baltimore. And he just sort of came up and introduced himself to me. He hadn't, he had been, I think just sort of recently promoted and had kind of taken over running DC. And I'll be honest at the time, I sort of felt like I was on my way out. Like I sort of felt like things had really cooled for me at DC. You know, I wasn't really somebody that they, they were asking to do a lot of things and, I just sort of felt like, well, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll see if I can jump over to another company or, or, you know, do something creator owned or something, you know? And he came up and introduced himself to me and basically just said, you know, Hey, I really like your work and I, I want you to do more for DC. Like, yeah, sure. I'd love to talk, you know? And I think I want to say probably a few months after that, I got a call about Blue Beetle. They were going to be relaunching Blue Beetle. And, you know, I'll be honest, it's like, I wasn't like, I wasn't like the biggest Blue Beetle fan in the world. I didn't think anybody really cared about Blue Beetle. Really? Yeah. This was 2005 or six. And I I just sort of thought, well, I mean, you know, okay, I'll talk about it. It's a job. You know, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of these decisions you make, I have to say are, well, is it a job? Does it pay? Sure. I'm interested. You know, there's there is a very mercenary kind of quality to a lot of this stuff. Oh yeah. And this is this is not to say that I don't have a habit of getting involved in a project and then finding something about it that I do get excited about. But at first, it was like, oh, Blue Beetle, yeah, okay. You know, Keith Giffen, sure, oh, yeah, I'd love to work with Keith. You know, that sort of thing. And I had found out at the, I think that they had another artist assigned to it at first, and. That artist, I could be completely off base. This is just sort of what I remember about it. That artist, for whatever reason, had to leave the project and they were looking for somebody new to do it. And they had a bunch of designs. They'd, I think they'd had three or four other people who had done designs for it, including Dave Johnson, which I thought was interesting. But their concept of the character was to do sort of like a mech, you know, like, like a Japanese robot kind of a, a yeah. thing. And I was looking at what other people had done, and I thought, well, these are cool, but I mean, you know, 
this is a superhero book. I mean, what I'm reading here is a superhero book and nobody's going to be able to draw this on a monthly basis. If you do with any of these other designs and they were like, well, can you come up with something? I said, sure. So I sat down and I, I just, you know, kind of drew what I thought the character looked like. And there were some other, there were some influences in it. Like I had had the idea to do kind of a, like a, a giant beetle is kind of like a backpack, you know, with the pincers kind of like extending above the head. Cause I wanted there to be some sort of a silhouette happening. And, you know, I, I, I uh, was trying to come up with a, a mask design and I remember Brian who was in the office next door to me said, Hey, you ought to do like a, you know, like a Mexican wrestler kind of a, of a riff or something. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's a good idea. And I just sort of, you know, cobbled something together. And I remember turning it in and Mark Chiarello, who was the art director at the time, just kind of, you know, said, that's it right there. And he, I think he had one change which was, you know, at, can you add like a symbol or something to his chest? But if you look at the original, I mean, because I, I think it's floating around online, the original drawing that I did was pretty fully formed. Like that was the first pass. Yeah, and, yeah. I'm looking at the style sheet right now. Yeah, and like Thanks all I added Pinterest. was that was that <laughs> sort of um, that sort of like a, a symbol on his chest that kind of sort of harkened back to the other Blue Beetle, to, to the Ted Core Blue Beetle. Yeah, yeah. But aside from that, it was it was pretty fully formed, and and I jumped on, you know, to do it. And then the, if I remember correctly, like we had a release date of like, I don't know, June or July, and it got moved up to March on me. So it's like I suddenly had a lot less time than I thought, and I I just basically just you know knuckled down and did it. I think I ended up doing like I want to say probably six or eight issues of it. I can't remember exactly. I did covers on it for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And do, do you mind if I ask you a, just a, a style question? Sure. I noticed that the design, there's all these, like, the lines and stuff like that, which, I mean, it it seems like it would be way harder to consistently do that. Was that a challenge that you considered when you when you designed it or were you I'm I mean not I'm sure John Spider Man so exactly what you mean. <laughs> oh no just <laughs> like all the, like the mech lines. <laughs> right. The neck like, lines? Oh the, you mean like the sort of segmented kind of Yes. Kind of, yes. Yeah. Well I mean that was in retrospect, I probably would have simplified that a little bit. I, I was trying to go for just the kind of exoskeleton-y kind of the thing. I, I was still doing essentially human anatomy. I was still doing essentially something skin tight, but I wanted it to have, that was the one thing that I wanted to kind of carry the kind of machine-like sort of quality over to it that I re- was originally in the concept. I wanted it to look like something technical, but also something bug-like. So, you know, if you ever study bugs or you ever looked at, look at, you know, the, you know, the anatomy of, of, bugs it's you know a lot of exoskeletons a lot of segmented pieces you know and i was just kind of going for a feel like that more than anything yeah i I love all the different accents you have on the on the costume like the the things that come up around the neck that look like the pincers on yeah i mean uh, like a scarab to me that that's like that's the kind of main feature of of that character design is the sort of the pincers that rise above the head and the legs of the beetle kind of like sort of curling around the shoulders and around the midsection to kind of, in effect, make it a a backpack. Yeah. Uh, And to me, that's what, 
gives the character its silhouette. And you can change all the other details. That doesn't really matter all that much. As long as you maintain what I call the bug pack. I, I always called it the bug pack. <laughs> so as far as character design goes, I mean, it, it's one of the one of the few times that I see a a character, I guess a reintroduction of a character, not not necessarily a character redesign because he's not Ted Cord, but when you see like a new costume for a, a returning character or something, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, this is this is good. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. Because they've, you know, they they change Superman's costume more than he probably changes his underwear. There's so <laughs> many different Superman designs, and the Blue Beetle design for for Reyes, it sticks out. It's solid and it's it's very well done. I, uh, I feel I feel like for for the major characters like Superman and Batman, I think you're going to see kind of, you know, future state and all that stuff. Notwithstanding, I think you're going to see the character just looking like the classic character for a while. I you know I could be totally wrong. I, I'm not in the know, but I, I sort of feel like they just kind of want to do the characters for a while, or, or or basically have however many versions they want, and one does not invalidate the other. But in terms of Blue Beetle, I do actually consider it a, a redesign in the sense that it was I was redesigning the property. You know, this doesn't mean that the other Blue Beetles don't exist, but you know, I I did co-create and and, and in you know, designing that, I created a new kind of a, of a trademark for them. And that, that's the job. I mean, that's what you're, you're hoping to pull off. The entire reason that they asked me to come on board for New 52 to do the role that I did there was off the strength of what happened with Blue Beetle. Because in terms of, you know, not, not necessarily just book sales. I mean, the book did, did well for a while. But in terms of toys and in terms of cartoons and just general licensing, Blue Beetle was a big success for them. I think Jim Lee had told me at one point it was like their most successful character redesign in like 20 years at that point. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. And that that's something also I, I hadn't really considered is that, I mean, he has been in several different, you know, adaptations in, in other media. And yeah. it's also, you know, one of the few, he's, he's Hispanic, right? So one of the few characters in like mainstream comics that kids first coming up into comics can go, Oh, this yeah. is, this looks like me. This is, you know, that was, that was, uh, I think that was kind of right at the right time too. Yeah. And, and um, it's that, that's so important for yeah. people to see themselves reflected in their media. Yeah, my, yeah, my I mean, wife is a. I'm sorry, my my wife's oh, a no, kindergarten teacher, yeah. and she teaches at a uh, predominantly African American school. And a lot of those kids, like when Black Panther first came out, yeah, those kids went nuts. And it wasn't just the you know the little black kids; it was all the kids. Yeah. And but the they had somebody that looked like them in the superhero movies, and it was every little kid on that playground was Black Panther. And it was yeah. so rad. <laughs> it, it was totally rad. And and like, I, you know, it just seemed like a culmination of like, you know, Brian, when Brian was offered that book, he called a couple of people. He called me and he called one or, th- one or two other people. I think all of us that he called said, dude, you got to do this book. Oh, yeah. And again, it was a situation where, you know, I, I think he was kind of like, does anybody care about Black Panther? You know? And I, I remember saying to him, I said, Brian, because Brian is not somebody that likes 
the idea of being a quote unquote black artist. He's an artist. He doesn't want to be thought of as somebody who only does black characters or somebody who, who can't do, you know, white characters or any character. I mean, he wants to, he wants, he's an artist. He should be able to do whatever he, whatever he wants. And up to that point, he was mainly known for Batman, if you think about it. And he was like, what do you think? And, and he, he, I said, well, who's writing it? And he says, I can't tell you that. <laughs> and I remember, I don't know why, and it might have been because I had just read one of his books, but I just, I just sort of blurted out. I said, is it Ta-Nehisi Coates? <laughs> and and guess right away. Was, I, I told him, you can ask him about this. It's, <laughs> it's pretty funny. And he was like, I, Brian's answer was, I can't tell you, but that's not a terrible guess. And I was like, okay. So I knew, I knew it was Ta-Nehisi Coates at that point who had a lot, of, a lot of eyes on him at the time and still does. And I said, you know what, Brian? I was, I was like, I, I know you don't want, you kind of don't want to be kind of like, you know, oh, here's a black artist doing a black character. I said, but I, I think this is going to be a big book. And I think that you ought to just do it because I think it's important people to see you doing it and doing it really as well as you're going to do it. And he just was kind of like, hmm. And I was like, I, I think it's important right now for people to see you do this. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say that he made the decision based solely on that, but I think that figured pretty heavily into his decision to do it. And, you know, when Brian does something like that, he throws his, all of his creativity into it. And if you look at that movie, the look of that movie is, you know, obviously there's a lot of Jack Kirby in there. There's a lot of Brian in there too, especially like when it comes to, you know, the design of, of like a, of a lot of the, the secondary characters and a lot of the vehicles and it's a lot of Brian in that movie. And afterwards you see, like you said, kids, you know, dressing up like Black Panther and going to the, the theater and like, you know, acting out on camera and that sort of thing on, online. And I mean, it just brings a tear to your eye to see like kids so excited about comic book character and not just kids, but kids of color, you know, having a character of their own that looks like them. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think Brian, you know, I think Brian was kind of like, you know, very glad that he, he did it because I think that, you know, not just that movie, but when I go to a convention or when I used to go to conventions before all this happened, you know, I would occasionally see his table and he would have a line, like a bigger line than he'd had in a while. And so many of the people in line were people of color and kids of color. And they were just so excited to see him doing this book. And I, that's just, it, you know, it, it makes you feel great to look at it, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and just lately in comics as a whole, there have been yeah. so many new people being brought into comics. Yeah, otherwise it, it's been you know dudes that look like me, like a bunch of bearded dudes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah like me, They're just and, shutting you know, out seriously. And everybody, and, um, <laughs> you know, it's great because th there has been an effort for years now to do that 
And it feels like it's finally kind of really happening. Like there was, you know, DC, I can only really speak to DC because I'm a lot more, I was, I've been a lot more involved with DC than other companies over the years. But I know that like DC definitely were trying to figure out a way to attract talent that wasn't just the usual talent that they had been getting. And I know that they were doing the, the, the workshops and, and that sort of thing. And they got some good people out of that. You know, yeah. don't, don't take me wrong. They, they got some really great people out of that. But it seems like this last year or so, the entire leadership at, at DC changed. And, and you can look at who's in charge at DC now, and it's a, def, it's a different day. And I think that they finally have just sort of shaken off kind of the slow corporate way of doing things. And they've just started making things happen. And I think you're seeing the fruits of that now. Definitely an effort, especially with something like Future State. There's a definite effort to team up kind of like, you know, veterans like me with new people. I was about to say, hmm, Future State, maybe you don't happen to have something come out in Future State, do you? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, of course I say this and I'm teamed up with Sean Lewis, who's a white guy. But you know what I mean? But we're doing The Guardian and, and it's a two issue story. And, you know, it was a blast and, you know, it's fun to do. And, you know, but you look around at the entire the way Future State is made up and it's a lot of new faces, a lot of new styles, uh, a lot of new names teamed up with people who've been around a while. And that's pretty cool. I mean, I think that's what I don't think it's any secret that Future State started out as this effort that was going to be a completely line-wide redo called 5G. Yeah. And, and when Dan DiDio got let go, I think they just sort of repurposed the material into an, into an event. But I think it originally was going to be a lot more permanent. Do, um, do you have any opinions about that? Or is that something that you want to keep to yourself? Because <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, I'm curious I, about that. I mean, I, you know, I, I do have opinions. I mean, a lot of them I, t- I probably would keep to myself. I mean, I, I've never, I, I think that, you know, it's always good to, to throw things against the wall and see what sticks. I did have an initial reaction of kind of like another reboot, you know, like, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, it wasn't that I didn't like the idea, but I was like, you know, it just seemed like, you know, how many reboots can you do, you know? But that said, you know, I think you'll sense a theme here. Every project that I've ever been a part of and that I've ever heard, I've ever been offered, my initial reaction has been, hmm, uh, okay, you know. And it's only when you start seeing the details of how things are coming together and, and you're seeing, like, kind of who's involved and what the take is that you start to go, oh, okay, yeah, I can, I, I'm down with that, you know. And I was not involved with 5G and when it was first starting up as, in, as far as I was going to do a book or anything like that. Although I had been briefed on it, the editor-in-chief uh, at the time kind of read me into it and we talked about opportunities, but nothing really came about until you know he was gone and a number of other people were gone and it had morphed into future state. But, you know, I mean, I, you know, like the character and I, I you know, Sean, I, I'd read some of his stuff in image and thought it was really cool. And, would seem like a, a fun thing to do. And yeah, they, so I hopped on board. They've really done put a lot of interesting people together that surprised me with, you know, the the pairings because it was kind of some of it seemed like it was kind of out of left field. But yeah. this is 
undiscovered country essentially that you're you're kind of going into so it's and it's fun seeing what's coming I mean, out that, yeah that really is the point i mean it's it's i i think that this is one of those things where i they're like just let's just toss everything in the air and see what interesting stuff happens and and i think you're 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 going to see a lot of people who you know started working together on future state and quickly became teams and end up on other books you know, I, I think that, you know, that's pretty clear. I, you know, it, it, to me, it's all good. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see, you know, all the new blood and I'm, I'm happy to see everybody doing the work that they're doing. It seems like people are interested in it. Yeah. And the people, I think now that people know it's got a, a beginning and an end date. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rather than like, this is, you know, this is how it is from now on. I think the usual crew of people that bitch about everything in comics that is <laughs> that has changed. I think those people kind of quickly just like, okay, we'll just bite our tongues for a little while. But those people, ugh. So, <laughs> but... It just, I think knowing that there's a finality to it kind of you know, I uh, mean, allows it, people to enjoy the ride. I, I think that the longer I've been doing this, the more I realize that stuff that seems like from a fan perspective when you're, when oh, this isn't right or this isn't the characters or whatever, look, it's all temporary. All of it is temporary. It's all going to snap back to, you know, kind of the, the, the stuff that you are used to soon enough. But the cool thing is then suddenly you've got this cool, you know, kind of little, little uh, pocket here that they've created that they can go back to and do more stuff if they want, or will work their way into the, into the regular books somehow. Or, I mean, look, it's, it's just, it's all just creativity and it's all, you know, half the things that are, are sort of taken for granted right now it, it, with a lot of these characters were, a lot like future state when they were first being done, you know, as, as far as like upsetting old school fans or, or, or whatever, you know, it's all good. You know, none of, none of it is going to affect the comics that are there or the comics that are coming out. You know, you're still going to get Superman comics. You're still going to get Batman comics. You want Bruce Wayne, you're going to get Bruce Wayne, you know, but you're going to also going to get another version of Batman if you want that. Yeah. Yeah. So, Speaking of, you know, kind of going back and what what have you, you you've played mostly in the DC sandbox. Is there anyone yeah. that you really feel like you you just nailed and you, you would want to get back to? Or, or someone that you haven't gotten a chance to explore that you think that Well, sure. I mean, like, look, I mean I, I you know I, I do want to do I mean I there are a lot of things I want to do. And it goes, goes back to what I was talking about, what Kevin was tweeting about earlier, where sure there are characters. I, I, I feel like, you know, I mean, I, you know, if somebody had a, a cool blue beetle project, I'd probably consider it. Sure. Why not? You know, are there characters that I've never done or that I've not done enough of that I'd like to try? Sure. I would, I still have never done what I would consider my definitive Batman project. Yeah. I am a huge Sam fan from when I was very, very young. I've never touched that character. I wouldn't mind doing something. I did a couple issues of Daredevil like about 20 years ago that were not particularly satisfactory to me. I wouldn't mind doing something with Daredevil at some point or Spider-Man or Captain America or, you know, I'd love to do a Nightwing project at some point. You know, Black Widow would be cool. Uh, I don't know. 
there's tons of stuff. And, you know, you add all that into the fact that I also have a, I've got a ton of ideas for creator owned stuff and you're, you know, you're so busy kind of making a living and, and kind of doing stuff that you hope people will read that, you know, at least for me, it's like, I, I've sort of let that lie fallow, I think a little too much. So I think it's getting to be time that I'm going to have to do something creator owned pretty soon. I've got a couple of projects that are sort of percolating in that area. So there's, there's that too. And there's probably not a better time than right now to do creator oh, yeah. owned stuff. So, you know, there's a ton of opportunities. I'm really kind of looking forward to how this next year is shaking out because I have some stuff on the table to do that should be pretty cool that I actually am pretty excited about. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. But yeah, there's tons of stuff I want to do, you know. I hear you. I'm I'm sure the guys at 12 Gauge would love to see your creator-owned stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, we've talked. I mean, the, the the thing I'm talking about is actually not something with them, though. It, it, it is something with a writer, a good friend of mine that that we are we are, have, you know, basically they're kind of waiting for me on to to kind of get get things rolling. Like I've got a script, and it's really kind of on me at this point. But I, I am nice. I'm slowly kind of like hacking away at it. But I've also got some work for hire stuff kind of in front of me, and I'm going to be kind of in one place for a little while, which would be nice. Uh, jumping around the thing about you know being an artist is you you don't really have the benefit of being able to take on what like four books at a time like some some of the writers do especially me especially me i mean i I just am not capable of doing you know you have so much uh, workload yeah i mean i it's funny because like you get into this thing of like especially if you're not exclusive with a particular company a lot of your time is spent setting up the next couple of jobs. So it's like you're working on one thing and you're, and you're basically fielding three to four other projects, knowing that only one of them is going to go. And, and you sort of have to, you basically have to spend so much of your time, you know, kind of, you know, planning for the future. And I have a gig coming up that is going to basically put me in one place for a little while. So I won't have to do that. Nice. So I'm hoping that the time that I don't spend on kind of setting things up for, you know, the next few months or whatever, I can, I can basically take that time and just work on the creator own thing also. So, so speaking of time and, and I don't want to use too much of your time. I want to ask you, how do you balance? Cause this is an intensive job. It is very work intensive. Yeah. You're, you know, staring at a, at a tablet or whatever, doing this for, you know, countless hours at a time, how do you achieve like a balance with, you know, being a person, <laughs> having, having other people in your life? What, what well, do you do? I mean, that, that is the age old question, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> and I don't think, I don't think it's unique to me, obviously, you know, most people I know who do comics, whether it's as an artist or as a writer or whatever, it's a pretty all encompassing job. Everybody that I know works, you know, many, many hours a day. And, you know, part of the reason why we do this also is, is we love it. We, I, I personally don't, I don't know that I could commit to anything else the way I do to work. But, you know, people have, you know, families and they have spouses. And I mean, I've been with my girlfriend now for 13, going on 14 years. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. I mean, we, you know, and, and, you know, the, the thing that's funny about it is, you know, she's a, a college professor and she's just as much of a workaholic as I am. 
So we both get we both get kind of stuck in those kind of like kind of work jags where we just can't really do anything else. But the cool thing is we're both pretty understanding about it. So it's never really kind of an issue as far as like you're not spending enough time with me or, you know, we all we we understand, you know, and it, it, I'm really lucky that I have that. Not everybody does have that. And we don't have kids. That's the other thing is a lot of people have got kids and that's a whole other level of demanding for a freelancer. But, you know, as far as what you is, for how you balance it, I think probably the best thing to do, especially if you're able to kind of have one gig and not have to field a bunch of other gigs is treat it as much like banker's hours as you can. You know, you get up, you get dressed, you have breakfast, and then you go to your office and you close the door and you work until lunch. And then you take lunch and then you get back to work and you work until quitting time. Now, my problem is that I do all that, but I don't tend to observe quitting time the way that some people do. Like quitting time for me is generally more like around 10 o'clock at night. So I I tend to work pretty solid 12 hours uh, a day. That said, I mean, you know, I love it. I mean, I wouldn't do that if I didn't love it. There, there are, you know, it's, it's a great job. It's a backbreaking job. It's a, it's it's a more physical job than I think people realize. Yeah. Cause you're sedentary. You, you, you are, sed- you are sedentary and that's bad, but yeah, you're not. also using your upper body much more than if you're a writer, you know what I mean? Yeah. Artists are, are a lot more movement involved in what we're doing and it's really stressful on your back. And, and especially, if, you know, when you get to my age, you know, I'm 50, I'll be 52 in a couple of months, about a month actually. So how do you stay um, healthy? doing this well i mean that's the other thing you have to make time to to work out you have to eat right i mean I, that's something that i've been trying to do the last few years but before the pandemic kind of made it impossible to go to a gym like i had a trainer and i would work out about four times a week and do that but also you know you, you have a tendency to just kind of cram your face with whatever food's around which is not good so I I did have a period there where I I was losing a lot of weight, you know, like trying to eat better, and I, I ended up losing about forty pounds. Oh wow! I've I have since put a little of it back on, which I'm distressed by, because of, you know, not being able to go to the gym and you know stress eating probably, because of all the stuff that's been going on in this country. But yeah, uh, yeah, stress eating, gym scroll. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. And but you know you you try and you know walk the dog, do whatever you can. It's good to get outside, you know, if you can, especially now. You just try to do what you can do. It's hard to stay healthy right now, though, because everybody, I think, you know, this entire year especially, but, you know, I think a lot of people, even for the last several years, have just been depressed. And yeah. I, I think that it's it's going to be a process bringing people out of this sort of collective funk that everybody's been in. But I think we'll do it, you know. So what is inspiring you right now? What's, what's getting you, like, hyped to, to get back at it? Well, I, it, there's sort of a, a natural kind of a change at the year. Generally, I have projects that will bleed, you know, in, from, from one year into another. But this, like, I finished everything that I had going on in 2020 about, about a week before Christmas. So I was actually able to take a break. Oh, nice. Which is highly unusual for me. 
but for me, it was like I was able to kind of clear the deck of everything I had going and I can just sort of start fresh. And like I said, I've got a project in front of me that I'm interested in that I'm excited about. And then I've got my creator own thing, which I'm very interested in. And I'm just going to just kind of stick to those two things all year. I'm not, not planning on doing a lot of covers like I have been doing, you know, if something cool pops up, I mean, I may not be able to say no, but you know, right now my plan is to basically just hunker down and, and, you know, work on these two things and not do much of anything else. That's what excites me more than anything is, you know, I got a cool work for hire project. I got a cool creator on project. It's pure storytelling. And that that's what excites me more than anything is, is story. Nice. Nice. That's, that's awesome. Do you have what, one question I ask always okay. just because it's, you know, comics, we need comic stores open. Can you give a local shop a, a shout out? Is there any local shop that you are particularly fond of? Oh yeah. I mean, my, my store is Austin books and comics. That's, that's like the, the, the store it's near my house that I go to and all those guys there are, you know, amazing. And it's a fantastic store. If you're ever in Austin, stop by it. It's, it's, it's really good. There's another one called Dragon's Lair, which is a, a good store. I have a those friend that goes there. Yeah. yeah, there's a, there's a couple of different stores I go, I go to, but the one that I mainly go to is, is ABC. And it's, uh, everybody there is just super awesome. Awesome. I'm, I'm going to try and remember to tag them in, in the show notes. Yeah. But Cully Hamner, thank you so much for talking to us. And oh. anytime you want to come back on, especially when you have those projects coming up that I don't want you to talk about now because I don't think you can, uh, right. <laughs> by all means, give us a shout. And if, if nothing else, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll at least talk it up on the website or whatever. I but will definitely, I'll definitely reach out. And, and if you ever want to have me back on, let me know. Dude, it was a blast. I, I, I yeah. can't wait to talk to you again. Awesome. All right, take it easy, brother. You too. And we're back. That's right. We are back. Back in the saddle again. Well, <laughs> I hope you guys really, really enjoyed that as much as we did making it for you. And if you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you got to go check out spoilerverse.com because at spoilerverse.com, we have a plethora. Plethora is such a, it's such a snobbish word. <laughs> I like it though. <laughs> It's, it's a good word. <laughs> we have an obscene amount of oh, interviews obscene. with amazing directors and artists of all walks of life and editors and writers. And, oh, my God, are you a lover of comic books like we are? And then there's so many, so many amazing people from the comic book world over at Spoilerverse.com. And I highly implore you to go there and check it out. Yeah, and while you're there, you can check out all the other podcasts on our network, like Bridges and Geekdoms and Funny Book Forensics and Haphazard Adventures and Nerds from the Crypt and so many more. Misery Point Radio. episodes all the time. Misery Point Radio has got a ton of great stuff out there. Go check all of them out. And check out all of the reviews and previews and articles we have going up every single day for you. Every day on Swillivers.com for you to check out, to read, and to love, and to like, and to comment. We have a store link. You want to help support the site? You can do it two ways. One, go to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash country, or go to our store link in the middle of the site there and get a t-shirt, a face mask, a hoodie, something. Look fly as hell and help support the site when you do that because we get a dollar or two. And, you know, maybe you want to talk to us. If you do, you can do it obviously on all the socials, but if you go to scpod.us slash discord, you can join our public discord server and come chat with us all day long. 
I couldn't say it better myself, dude. <laughs> there you go. You just mouthed out a ton of information at once. And really, <laughs> I hope you guys enjoy what you're hearing because we're, we're working our butts off to bring it to you. We are. We are. I guess there's only one left thing. One left thing? Yeah. I'm going to go with it. There's only one left thing left to do. What's that? In an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do. Open the mind. And... Even more.